0: And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat, while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Again, Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. Yes, indeed. It is Sunday, December 25th. It is Christmas. So happy and Merry Christmas. I love when they say Happy Christmas in the Great Britain. I love that. I don't know why it just cracks me up. Anyway. Merry Christmas. Happy to all. If you are listening today or saving these up for next week, that's fine, too. Um, We're always appreciative of you. Today, we are airing the second part of an interview that we actually aired earlier. I don't remember when we did it. When did we do this interview, Mark? Uh, I think this was early on in COVID. So I'm going to say it was early 2020. Yeah, this might've been from early 2020. That's right. Um, This is the second part of our interview with Tim Harford, the Financial Times columnist. He's so wonderful. The book is called The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. Um, In this part of the interview, we're talking about algorithms, how they rule us and may not be the best thing in the world. Here's part two of our interview with Tim Harford. You know, you also go into a bit of a breakdown of algorithms and you cite my friend Kathy O'Neill, who wrote Weapons of Math Destruction, and she also
1: blurred your book. It's a brilliant book. She's a legend.
0: She had pointed out in her book just about how, you know, you think you've got this thing, this formula, this algorithm that, um, you know, essentially that you think that this is now sort of getting rid of any bias that's out there, whether it's, you know, there were not women included in this study or this, and yet she points out that, you know, actually an algorithm is created by a human being and human beings are subject to bias. So when we hear about algorithms in terms of, you know, um, whether it's a tech company or um, maybe something a little bit, you know, it's not nefarious, the Netflix algorithm. What should we take out of this from your perspective around the algorithmic culture that we live in right now?
1: The lesson that really struck home to me actually is going to surprise you. It comes from a, a monk who lived in the 1600s. He taught us something really important. His name was, uh, was Marin Mersenne. And he taught something very important about how knowledge progresses. So at the time, you had the alchemists who were trying to turn turn lead into gold, and you had the scientists. And it turns out the alchemists and the scientists were the same people, people like Isaac Newton, and they were using the same methods, experiments. And yet the alchemy went absolutely nowhere. They didn't even have productive failures. And the science, well, science became science. The rest is history. And Mersenne's insight was, if we want to make progress, we have to share information. We have to perform our experiments in a way that everyone can see them, anybody can repeat them, people can criticize, can collaborate. He became known as the postbox of Europe. So scientists from all over Europe would post letters to, to Mersenne, and this monk would copy the letters out and would distribute them. And so people shared scientific knowledge. It didn't happen with, with alchemy. And it didn't happen with alchemy for a very simple reason, which is you discover how to turn lead into gold. You don't want anybody else to know, okay? Mm. So you keep it secret. And so the same people using the same methods made loads of progress with science and zero progress with alchemy. And it's all about transparency, oversight, competition, collaboration, discussion. Okay, let's think about algorithms. They're like alchemy. I mean, mm. it's, a, it's a powerful tool. And we are learning things. It's not as fruitless as as trying to turn lead into gold, but we have the same destructive norms of secrecy. So you have a company that says we've got an algorithm, and you just feed it a bunch of information about a somebody who's been accused of a crime or convicted of a crime, and we'll tell you if this person is at risk of reoffending. And we say, okay, well, how do we know that your algorithm works? And they say, well, it's a, that's a a trade secret that's commercially confidential. And so we have these algorithms where we're told they're brilliant, and governments always willing to believe a, a you know a nice piece of technical snake oil will go, yeah, that sounds great, an algorithm, great, that's going to solve all our problems. And it's actually very, very difficult to subject these algorithms to public scrutiny. So that's the lesson I think we really need to take. And I, I think Cathy O'Neill, and she is fantastic, I think she'd agree. there's nothing intrinsically wrong with algorithms. They can work. They do work. They will potentially correct all kinds of unfairness, but not if we abandon our modern norms of scrutiny and transparency. That's what we need to demand of these algorithms.
0: I know. And everyone like sort of lumps algorithms and statistics and investment returns into like a bucket of like, oh my God, I hate math. And what you're really saying is, you know, there there is the math. But there is also, again, the emotion, and I want to finish this uh, interview with you talking about investor stubbornness, which you you talk about at the end of the book, and a great example of how stubbornness and emotions can get in your way is really a comparison between two economists. So can you explain the story and what you take away from that story?
1: Yeah. I mean, as you can tell, Jill, I love stories. The book is full of stories. And this story is about Irving Fisher and John Maynard Keynes. John Maynard Keynes needs no introduction. Quite a few listeners will be going, I've never heard of Irving Fisher. Who's Irving Fisher? And people who do know who Irving Fisher is, probably he's most famous for saying two weeks before the great Wall Street crash of 1929 Stocks have reached a new and permanently high plateau. So not an investment genius, but he was a genius. He was the most famous economist on the planet at that time. So you've got Fisher and Keynes. They're both active at at the same time. They're both brilliant. They're both very interested in investment. And they both fail to predict the Wall Street crash. The difference between them is that Fisher would just doubled down and doubled down again and backed himself into a corner and was unable to walk away from his very public predictions. Whereas Keynes, partly because I think he was less publicly exposed, partly also because he was just a different kind of character, turned on a sixpence and walked away. Said, oh yeah, well, I I messed that up. You win some, you lose some. One comment he made to his father was, win or lose, this high stakes gambling amuses me. So they made the same mistake, Keynes very quickly changed his mind and ended up dying a millionaire, very, very successful investor. Fisher, same mistake, was only saved from bankruptcy and indeed prison by being bailed out by his sister-in-law who was a millionaire. Very, very sad story. It's all about the importance of being willing to change your mind, whether we're talking about investment or just your opinions about almost anything. I mean Keynes Keynes is famous for having said and he never said it but he's famous for it anyway for having said when the facts change I change my opinion. What do you do? He lived that and I think that's why he's famous for the quote even though it's a misattribution. Sadly he never got the chance to teach the lesson to Irving Fisher.
0: So I'm I wonder how you see social media amplifying some of the the worst aspects of these points that you're raising, that you can dig in, that you can find your echo chamber. If you're only watching one news channel to get your political news, it makes me nervous to think that, in fact, um, the doubling down echo chamber of social media and media in general makes it tougher to use your book and open minds. So what can you leave us with to put me in a better mood? Because now, you know, I'm. I've just convinced myself the world's coming to an end and no one's (laughs) going to be open-minded ever again.
1: Look, it's never been easier to get really good quality information. It's never been easier to get a second opinion. It's never been easier to go straight to the source, to double check the data. A lot of this is about having the desire and the emotional maturity to, to do so. Social media doesn't help. But then traditional media doesn't necessarily help either. I mean, if it's the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the Economist, the New Yorker, great. But there's a lot of trash out in the traditional media as well. But the way I think of it is is this. When people are thinking about numbers, the three Cs, first calm. Just try and notice your emotional reaction and tone it down because so much of what we believe is about emotions, anger, joy, vindication, winning an argument. So first C is calm. Then you're thinking more clearly. The second C is context. How does this number relate to other numbers? Is it going up or down? Is it big or small? What's actually being measured? Where's it come from? Context is important. And then the final C is curiosity. What does this number actually tell me about the world? What does it suggest is a gap in my knowledge? What else can I find out? Where else can I go to find out more, to scratch that itch of curiosity? So those are the three Cs calm, context, curiosity. Really important. When you think about Twitter, Facebook, they can help with all of them. I mean, they can help you with curiosity. They can provide context. But very often they are thriving on emotion. They're thriving on sound bites that are stripped of all context. And they thrive on arguments. So not being curious about the world, but trying to win an argument. If you can find a way to use them that respects the three C's, calm, context, curiosity, go for it. It is possible. But I think the very design of those systems tends to push in the opposite direction. And and that is something that worries me.
0: Well, that's it. That's the program. I hope you have a wonderful and Merry Christmas. Have fun. Uh, Be nice to everyone. Put your hands metaphorically on someone's back. Grit, growth, grace. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow.